And and to be frank, I I can't think of a single time when a seller has come to us and said these words. You know, I need help with practice management. You know, that's just, just they yeah. never say that, right? But what they do say are things that are directly tied to practice management. So what we hear commonly, and Jacqueline, you add any other comments in here, but I'm I'm burnout, right? Um, I'm I want to change how I work. I'm tired of managing the team. I need help training the team. You know, um, I want to get back to what I love doing, which is working with clients. And I'm tired of, you know, running the business. So these are all things that they're expressing as quality of life changes they'd like to see made. But the solution to all of them is, is a practice management top. Alan Darby, Jacqueline Martinez. This is the buyer's boardroom. Learn the most about who you are today and where you want to be after. Welcome back, friends and family. This is the Buyer's Boardroom. I am your host, Rick Music, and with me, as always, Jacqueline Martinez. Welcome back. Alan Darby. Hello, sir. How are you, Rick? To my friends out there, for the last couple episodes, we've been talking about the perceptions of attractiveness uh, and specific items that drive M&A transaction value. Um, attractiveness is something I love to talk about. We can't stay there forever. We actually do have to move on, which moves us into today's show. We feature our our guest, Stephanie Bogan of, of Limitless Advisor. She is a practice management guru, Alan and Jacqueline. I'll say it again, a practice management guru. Indeed. Um, I want to let you kind of take over, guys. Stephanie Bogan, I, she's she's great at what she does. When I hear practice management, I think our audience wants to know, where does your head go when you hear the topic? Yeah. So, well, let me just kind of frame this a bit. Um, practice management is going to be the topic, but why are, why are we talking about it? Um, and the reason is when you're a seller and you're looking to partner with another firm, you know, there are a number of reasons that would motivate you to pursue a partnership. There's monetary reasons, quality of life, growth reasons, all of those types of things. Um, and cert based on what's motivating you, that's going to naturally orient you towards specific potential buyers, partners, if you will. And a lot of buyers develop their value proposition to you as a potential partner around certain key things. One of them is practice management. And so, and, and I actually think, uh, it's probably one of the most powerful things that a potential uh, partner for you as a seller could do. Um, and so we're going to unpack it a bit. Uh, and I think it'll, it'll be really useful for people to help understand what, what is it, which I'm going to give you my definition here in a second. Uh, and then why is it relevant to consider this when you may be seeking a partner? Okay. So, um, well, practice management, uh, let's talk about the, what it is. It's defining roles of responsibilities, you know, who does what in the office and on what days. It is getting rainmakers out of non-rainmaking functions. It's turning uh, what are normally generalists uh, as the employees in a smaller office into more niche specialists. Uh, we'll come back to those things. Uh, but it, those doing those things typically equates to 
what we call business lift. And we're going to talk in detail about where you see that materialize. It, it translates into quality of life improvements for the owners and for the team members. It can, it can also translate into service standards rising, uh, what you're delivering to your client. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of things that practice management um, can deliver depending on, you know, whether you need them or how you value these things. That's all, you know, subject to the individual we're talking about. But as a, if you're joining a larger organization via acquisition, uh, practice management can be, if that's a part of the buyer's, you know, value prop, one of the most powerful things that they can do. So that's my definition and why we're I, talking about practice. Yeah. I think a, a lot of those things you're talking about, advisors can improve upon absent seeking a partnership, right? Like they can, they can align the roles and responsibilities to certain job descriptions. They can do those types of things. But then that one step further for a partnership where the buyer is really integrating a lot of the back office functions as well for them, it can go another level because now not only are they trying to decide who does certain things, but responsibilities are actually coming off of the plates of that local office. You now have a centralized team that can do a lot of the heavy lifting. You may never talk to the SEC again, completely off of your plate, that type of thing. And then, and 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 then we'll really see the KPIs improve well beyond norms of because there's only so much you can really do with a five hundred million dollar firm, billion dollar firm. There's only so many people and so many things that have to get done. But when you really take a lot of those items off of their plates entirely, then it can be a whole transformation. Well said. Yeah. Thanks, guys. So that's practice management, huh? Do you still yeah. think it's dumb? Guys, I, like all five of our listeners just changed the channel. Like <laughs> you, guys, you guys are going to have to turn, you guys are going to have to turn me around on it because I'm going to tell you where there's a phrase that exists because where my head goes on practice management, imagine for, imagine for one second that I'm a, a financial advisor, and, and just for one second, don't dwell on that thought, but I'm, I'm a wealth management professional. I'm an owner operator and someone sends a practice management professional into my office where my head goes is on the heels of this phrase. Those that cannot do teach. So who's going to sweep in on their magical vine, spend four hours in my firm and leave and change my professional life. I guys, I'm not buying. It, so <laughs> I don't think that would that a four hour session wouldn't change anything. I think, I think that's spot on. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Rick, you're dumb. Let's just start with it. <laughs> wrong. But, um, but no, your 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 approach is not uncommon. Like it's 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 we as entrepreneurs in the wealth management business, there's no shortage of consultants who, whether it's at a conference or they actually come into our office or we go on site to their facility, they're telling us what we're doing wrong and how to reshape our business and everything is going to be better if we take these actions. So, um, and, and to be frank, I, I can't think of a single time when a seller has come to us and said these words, you know, I need help with practice management. You know, that's just, just they yeah. never say that. Right. But what they do say are things that are directly tied to practice management. So 
what we hear commonly, and Jacqueline, you add any other comments in here, but I'm I'm burnout, right? Um, I'm I want to change how I work. I'm tired of managing the team. I need help training the team. You know, um, I want to get back to what I love doing, which is working with clients. And I'm tired of you know running the business. So th these are all things that they're expressing as call them quality of life changes they'd like to see made. But the solution to all of them is, is a practice management tie. Mm -hmm. And so um, now the challenge, as you are coming to Rick, is most practice management programs that we've seen, it's someone basically telling you after an evaluation of your business, what you need to go change to improve things. Uh, and then they leave. Or, you know, and it's up to you then to go do it. And therein lies the fallacy or the flaw of that approach is because, I mean, if you knew how to go do it, you probably wouldn't have needed the practice management consultant in the first place. So it's in the implementation or the lack of implementing the good ideas that's the, the problem. But that's also why, as in, in terms of a partnership via acquisition with a larger firm, they're not only bringing the good ideas to help you improve things, but they're also bringing the implementation alongside it. At least the good ones are. Yeah. So they ask people on the team that are actually going to come in and help you implement the very ideas that they're suggesting. So yeah. that's like, I, I get your, your, your comment about, you know, you got to convince me, but you're right. You know, practice management, when it's just someone telling you what to do is much less effective than someone who's helping you decide what to do, but also helping you implement. Right. Well, and like, and in the larger firms too, they will have firms that maybe joined two, three, four years ago as well that did go and implement everything that was outlined. They really leaned into it and had the humility that, okay, maybe we aren't doing everything right. Maybe there's a different way to do this. And there's case studies that they can speak to those advisors directly and see like, how did you really break through what I think those natural breaking points, the 100 million, 250, 750 to break through those barriers? It comes with change, comes with changing the way you work, adding to your team, maybe enhancing technology, doing things a little different. No, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I, I'm a big believer in practice management. I think um, it is the most powerful thing or one of the most powerful things that a partner can help smaller businesses with. Um, and if it's if if you are a candidate for practice management, that is definitely something that you want to put into the evaluation criteria of who is a good partner for you. Right. I'll be curious to see how Stephanie frames it up. But I think like the success of these programs, I mean, I would think would be centered around an accountability framework to check in, see how it's going, block and tackle issues that are coming up. And then also on the advisor side, the humility to like, you know, bring the whole team into it. This is a new way that we're operating. We're all in it together and and like being open to feedback from folks that have been through it and seen it be successful and all of that. All right. I'm coming around a little bit. Not quite there yet, but you'll get there. It's like more of an art than a science, um, but I'll bite. A lot, I think, what you're talking about right now are kind of under the surface. Are there any leading obvious indicators? Like, are there clues that are giveaways? Like, oh, the yeah. experts? 
like well, what are what are we like looking in their data? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, there's let's call them qualitative and quantitative things that are clues. Qualitatively, it's you know you hate your life. You know, like it's just the business is uh it controls you, right? You're you you you're burdened by all the responsibilities, and you know you can't go on vacation without you know responding to 20 emails a day and picking up the phone to put out fires um you know those those are easy to identify things for you as an individual you know if that's your reality today the answer is in practice management changes okay but there are very real uh data points that i think that you could actually evaluate too um that would be an indicator that okay maybe there's better ways of operating for you in your specific practice. So things, I'll just run through a few, and Jacqueline, you, you, you jump in here too. Um, one of the first things that we look for as an indicator that this firm might be a practice management candidate is a metric uh, revenue per employee. Um, and so it's just as a real back of the napkin way that we can determine essentially if a practice is operating efficiently. And so on average, if you um, look at a revenue per employee at most RIAs out there today, it's around 300000 So it, I, I do this all the time. If I didn't know anything about your business other than going to your website and counting the number of faces I see, let's say you had 10 people, I would just multiply times 300000 and say your revenue is probably close to $3 million. And that is a really, I should say, a highly inaccurate way of um, projecting revenue. So if you're substantially lower than 300,000 revenue per employee, I would say you probably have, you're a candidate for improved process, improved technology, maybe people management, you might have people in the wrong seats, you know, so all of those things would be, that's, that's an indicator um, that you, you, your revenue per employee is yeah. less. Than it could be a fee model issue too. I remember United Capital One, dear friend and um, that was way charging way below market. Everything else was basically fine, but but just bringing fees up to market levels was a game changer. Yeah, and I do want to make one point here. Um, so, Jacqueline mentioned like where you actually see practice management um, work, and one of the easiest ways to look is how how is the financials of the business improving. So, if you look, um, you know, go back to our United Capital days, and we see this at Partners today. Other other firms, they acquire a firm that's at three hundred thousand revenue per employee, and three years later, it's at six hundred thousand revenue per employee. Um, so that that's a great financial outcome. But what some people hear is a, maybe a lowering of service standards, and that's not what we're talking about. We're not saying you know just sacrifice service standards to get profitability and revenue up. It's actually profitability, revenue goes up, and the service standards go up along with it. That's that's an effective practice management thing. Um, another quick metric I would say is your EBITDA margin. So your net income margin, uh, standard, we see 40 to 60% is kind of normative EBITDA margins today. So if you're really low, like 25, 30% EBITDA margins, that would be an indicator that you could probably use some process efficiency improvements, which again is practice management. Uh, another metric is how many advisor, how many client relationships per advisor. So I would say an average is around 85 to 120 client relationships per advisor. That's highly dependent on you know what type of service you're delivering to the clients.
But if you're substantially below that, um, it could mean that you are a candidate for uh, practice management improvements, uh, things like that. Another one, if you're turning away clients, how about that one? That's one we see a lot. You know, people that were almost brag about the fact that they uh, they are not accepting new clients, um, and that is a clear indicator that you you have a need for practice management improvements. Yeah, Anything yeah, it's else? a tricky one. That's a tricky one to say directly to a buyer and not infer that you have zero desire to grow, and it um, can be really interesting to receive. But the, I mean, I, I think on the other side, on the employee side, like when we do a deep dive on the the team at the office and look at when they join the firm, if there's high turnover, everyone's new within the last few years, but the firm has been around for 10 years, there's usually an interesting story there of what might have happened or, um, so that would be on the employee side, but then also retention on the client side. Like typically we're seeing that firms are really only losing clients if, if there's, someone passes away. Um, I think even then there's opportunities to make sure that you're planning work, that you're bringing in next gen into those meetings, you're making those connections, even if they're not at size to be a client of yours today, that that you're making those connections and, and that you don't lose the assets when something like that happens. Um, those would be the other big ones. Yeah, we would, we would, we've seen buyers, you know, they'll measure a lot of these metrics at the point of acquisition. And then as practice management changes over, you know, call it a two, three, five year period, they track all of these metrics, revenue per employee, EBITDA margin, um, client retention rates, uh, share of wallet, you know, all of these things. The net promoter score is a big one they track, you know, and how, how the client's um, perception of you as an advisor is improving. And ideally what you'll see is all of those numbers just start creeping up. And so it's, you know, the business is operating more profitably, your teammates are happier, uh, your clients are getting better service, you're making more money. It's just, it's just that's, that's practice management where you see it really succeed. That was a good point on the net promoter score. It always fascinated me, the United Capital, like most firms didn't survey their clients every year or some interval, but at UC we did. And simply asking the client, how often would you like to meet with your advisor? You know, maybe the advisors just consistently met quarterly. You ask your client, they're actually good with semi-annual or annual check-ins. And then and then that's that's plenty. And you've instantly freed up a lot of time, the prep for yep. those meetings, the actual meetings, and that's what the client wants. Yeah. Great point. I don't think this was intended to be alarming for any of our listeners. But I mean, being if that's the buyer's boardroom, you know, we're listening, maybe you, you poured yourself a drink, you're smoking a pipe or, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a little work at the office and you're listening to us right now and you, and you're running what you believe is to be a successful practice. Let you know, Hey, we've got a successful practice. And now we're talking about some indexes here that in terms of running a business, you're running a good business, but now we're looking through the lens of, you know, valuation and attractiveness to a buyer. Um, and, and there are these glaring things that maybe I didn't know that I needed to be better at. Um, and now I can, I can sense like a tightness on an operator's in an operator's chest. Like, okay, now I, now I have even more to do. Thank you, Alan and Jacqueline for, for that. You're welcome. I thought I was good. And now I've got work to do. And again, I'm not turned around yet on practice management guys. I get what it is. I think I understand what comes to light as a result of it. But I'm still stuck on where it fails. 
Um, well, it would fail under the lack of implement, implementing it. And that's that's it. Right period. there. You know, it's like, well, okay, look, you have to have a. Jacqueline has mentioned this a couple times. Humility, um, and that can't be. That's can't understate how important that is to have a degree of humility about you. And it's not that you're not proud about what you built. You know, you could, you could have had a successful business, uh, high quality of lives, your clients love you, all that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that there aren't still better ways of doing things. And it might not be for you, it could be for your team. You know, like I, when I had my practice, and that, you guys are my teammates now, like I, I don't consider myself a great manager of people, you know, um, and that if if you are that way too as an owner of an RIA, I mean, you could be limiting your teammates. And so in their career path and their growth and all the rest. So having a degree of humility about you to say, listen, okay, if there's better ways of operating, um, of doing cer or certain processes that I should change. And it, it, now look, the buyer has to articulate why the changes they're asking you to make uh, result in good things happening. So they, they got to give you real data that says that these are the improvements you can expect. But if that's the case, then you should have an open mind about taking those changes to heart and considering implementing them. You know, you're not doing it blindly, but, you know, have a sense of humility about you. But, but Rick, it, practice management works. It flat out works if you do it. You know? um, so, well, it's, yeah, I, I, I think the idea of it resonates, but I've been to a couple of these conferences where they take you in for two days and they teach you all the stuff and then you leave and then it doesn't exist anymore after the two days are over. It's the, it's the, it's the, I guess the execution of it is this, you know, yeah. Hopefully, but the, hopefully but the, people are helping. Yes. Yeah, so if it's important to you and you, if some of the things that we've talked about, you know, resonate, then as you're evaluating potential partners for you, you would naturally be seeking a firm who one has an opinion on practice management. And there are, there are plenty of buyers out there who take the position, we're not going to try to change anything that you do, right? But it's like, we're just going to centralize the back office and leave you alone. And that's perfectly fine. You know, there look, there are people who are hearing us talk about areas that we identify as where you need practice management. I'm sure there are plenty of people listening that, you know, they're, they're at 600,000 revenue per employee. They're, they're, um, that promoter score is off the charts. Their quality of life is high. They can go on vacation. Like Stephanie Bogan, we're getting ready to talk to. She's, I think she's been in Italy for 30 days or something like that. You know, so right. she eats her own cooking. You know, just being able to do stuff like that. You so practice management might not be important to you as you're evaluating a potential partner. So we're really speaking to the people who are hearing this and say, yes, these that would be really helpful to us. And when I say us, the partners, the team, and the clients. And therefore, we need to know how to evaluate a potential partner and what they can actually do for us in these areas. And so that's that's why it's such an important topic. Right. And then I think thinking back on our United Capital Days, the core framework of our practice management coaching program was really looking at the the whole team and on the on the founder side, that founder CEO usually that's the rainmaker. They've grown the business. They're they're the business owner, but over time as the business has gotten more complicated, they're adding to the team. They're they're this like accidental business owner originally just yeah. wanting to work with clients, be a great advisor, and now there's all these other responsibilities and so how do we align the rest of the team to what needs to happen? 
massively important point. I, I have a good friend of mine who actually is a, a consultant, Rick, who uh, you probably have no place, no value on what he does, but he goes down and helps, <laughs> yeah, it's not fair. He helps um, owners uh, in their hiring process. And one of his favorite phrases is what qualifies you as an owner to hire anybody? Have you ever been trained on how to hire people? And, you know, that's a massive problem in our industry because, you know, I, I tend to hire people that I like, you know, and who are like me. And that's probably not a good recipe for success. You want to have the one, you need to define what are the roles in our organization necessary to deliver the service to our clients and then be able to evaluate the people that are in those roles. We would do this all, that's Harper and United Capital, but we would go in and we do what I think was called a Harris assessment test or something mm -hmm. like that. With every firm that we acquired, we would want to go in and look at all the people and have them go through this Harris assessment, which essentially told us, are they in the right job for their respective strength, you know, whatever, whatever that was. And I can't tell you how common it was that there were people assigned to roles that they not only had no business doing because it wasn't their strengths, but they didn't enjoy it. <laughs> and so part of the win for the team member is they got to get on a career path that was much more closely aligned with their strengths, what they wanted to do. You know, so it's it's a very, this hiring process is very big, big part of it. Just assembling the right team and having a partner who can help you think through those things, you know, is, is really, I hate to be. Yeah, so much of it is behind the scenes. I think that's another common misconception that something is going to impact the client experience negatively. And that's that's not usually what happens. That's certainly not the intent. Um, but it, it's more about the, the every everyone on the team doing the things that they love and being really great at it, being really focused, getting even better at it. And and that that will make the client experience that much better if everyone that is interacting is happy. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, Jacqueline, is that the, the the partner, the buyer here is not trying to disintermediate you. You know, they're not trying to make you irrelevant. You know, this they're trying to improve everything. And and I we've seen this happen, you know, as as the owners let go and they lean into the other resources that are available to them as a part of a larger team, um, they are, their quality of life just goes way up. You know? And so and then everything else improves around that as well. So quality of life and relevancy. I do talk to a lot of owners and, you know, now that I kind of, this is, you know, the, the fog is sort of clearing. I do hear them say they're, they're doing a lot less of the business development, face-to-face -face, client facing and rainmaking activities. And because that's what they love doing far, far less than what they used to as a result of their business being grown. So that does track. Right. No. So super excited to uh, bring on Stephanie Bogan. We got to work with Stephanie uh, back in our days at United Capital. Got to see her up close and personal, uh, really make sub substantial improvements in the lives on, on, of the United Capital partners as she implemented these very ideas that we're talking about. So super excited to bring her on. Okay, well, uh, Stephanie Bogan of Limitless Advisor, we're super excited to have you on with us today. Um, one of my favorite topics. I know it's a topic near and dear to your heart. Uh, we had a chance to work together for a brief period of time going back to the United Capital days. Um, and so I got to see you work live and, and really help a number of advisors out with this uh, topic that we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to just 
Well, why don't, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background before we get started and a, limit, a little bit about Limitless Advisor. I want to hear. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, so I always joke by a success story is that I moved out when I was 17. My mother had a mental illness. My dad had PTSD, insert complex traumatic childhood and all ensuing effects. Um, started my first firm when I was 24. You know, most people go out and get a lot of experience and then become a yep. consultant. I became a consultant. I got an awful lot of experience. I uh, was very fortunate to do very well at that uh, and sold that firm to a fortune tuner company 12 years later. So at 36, uh, I took a year off, went to Kirks and Caicos with my family. Uh, right about that time, Joe Duran reached out and said, I have the perfect job for you. And I said, how could that possibly be? And he said, because I invented it just for you. And I was like, OK, I'm listening. Um, and as you know, right, it was the SVP. We ultimately kind of created a role where we designed the practice management model that we use to scale right the, the business in each of the offices. Uh, the very cool client experience work that we did, right? Money, mind, honest conversations, the guidebook, all of that. Very cool stuff. Uh, and then training and development. We built out like in order to get everyone to follow a practice management model, run their firms well, market well, follow that advice and client experience. You have to train people. Mm-hmm. So we ended up building out a 10,000 square foot training center in Dallas and building out departments and support teams. And so it was just a really incredible experience to take opportunity to take all of the experience that I've had and on top of the rate scaling things at Genworth to really scale it in an advisory firm in a really, in a really cool way. Um, so as you know, I was there for a few years uh, and then I had my second child and I loved it, but I was also in the position of I signed off. I evaluated it every single firm and I had to sign off on every single M&A transaction that we did that I felt good about them, that we could create enough opportunity and lift and right, really show them what model we were going to move into in a way that created something better together than we could on our own, which was awesome. Uh, but as we got that third round of funding, as you know, right, the, the jets took off and I was just not in a position from a life perspective. I had already sold a company. I didn't technically have to work. I loved it, but I just was no longer in a position to give up that time with my family. And I was really struggling with that because, you know, we talk about mindset so much at Limitless. My identity was wrapped up and this is something founders so completely understand. So not only have we done a ton of this consulting, right? I did hundreds of transactions at United. I've also, as a founder, built and sold multiple companies. Right. So I understand very personally the highs, the lows, the good, the bad. And here's what I've learned. The grass may be greener on the other side, but it always still has to be watered. Right. It's really about how we sit in the space of building and ultimately monetizing value in businesses. To me, I had to learn that the point of success wasn't more. We had a beautiful house on the hill. I had millions of dollars in the bank. I was on the cover of magazines. Right. I like I just had like I really worked hard to build this incredible career and I had met coming up growing up in a trailer park which was my background, like I was like, this is the ball. Like, this is amazing. Uh-huh. Really hard to walk away from it all. But I had this moment where I was like, I need to just be a nobody on the beach and be really happy with myself, right? So that I can bring that. And I just needed a lot of time with my kids because I'd sacrificed a lot of it. So I like to say I learned that the science of failure, I learned that more isn't better, better is better. And that when you are happy and energized and empowered, what we call working from a success state, right? Positive, can do, empowered, everything is figure outable. You can accomplish pretty much anything 
And when you've got good skills and talent, call that practice management for this conversation, you can do it efficiently and effectively. And if you've got the right mindset, which is the part most people miss, you can also do it enjoyably. And you can actually accelerate your results in a way that you can't doing things the old, hard, grindy way. And you can do it while generating more revenue, income, profitability. And to me, the, the most important part, freedom for yourself. What is the point of success if you don't have the time and freedom to enjoy it? So I was fortunate that I got to sell a company early. Then I got to go do this very cool United Capital experience, right, to really get a sense of how to scale things, which turns out I love doing. I love what I call scaling special. It's just cool. Right. To take something that a firm is doing and trying to figure out how do we work out all the kinks and the pain points and the problems. It's like a chess game, right? Business is just a big chess game. Everybody has access to the same resources, the same staff, the same clients, the same providers. The only difference is how we think about and act on that information. And those series of decisions, which all happen between our ears, ultimately determine the success that we create. So I did all that. And then uh, I was in Costa Rica for five years and uh, I was really running a PTA. Uh, I was in great shape and I spent a lot of time practicing the conjugation of Spanish verbs, uh, which is a whole lot of fun. And then after five years, I was like, I think I need to do something with my brain Um, and literally started the idea of Limitless Advisor, uh, which now has like two programs, a lifestyle program for advisors that want to build that seven figure practice, but still have a lot of time and freedom. And then leaders, which is right for the founders of seven and eight figure firms that are really ready. You know, I say the more and better calls. They want to create new levels of success for themselves and their teams and their firms is that, you know, as they grow and go into the next generation, but they want to do it in a way that feels really good. You and I talked about pre-call, like you just get stuck doing so much stuff that you hate and it feels like a burden. And everyone says, I just want to get out of the grind and do what I love. But after 10 or 20 years, they haven't figured it out. And so that's where it really can, you can insert a seismic shift in how you think about and act in your business from a mindset and then a methods perspective. And man, you can see some radically cool things happen. Well, it's, it's a great segue because as, as you know, with the buyer's boardroom, a lot of these, um, uh, with the audience that we speak to, uh, in many cases are firms that are saying, hey, I've hit this ceiling of complexity. I'd like to change things in my life. I'm not sure how to do it. And they're potentially considering selling. uh, uh, Selling, um, it doesn't mean they're exiting the business. They're often looking to join another firm. uh, And in many ways to access some of these benefits that I'm broadly calling practice management. And I don't even know if you would want to use that term anymore or if you have something different. It's like you've elevated the the verbiage around it quite a bit. But can we just start by... If, if we are going to go with the term practice management, can you give me a definition of that? Like, what? how would you define it? Yeah, well, it, it's one of those, like, general terms that everyone understands, but nobody quite knows how to define. Does it include marketing? Does it not include marketing? Does it include... Yeah. So we really define it as practice optimization, not to be, you know, cheeky and cute with words, but when you're a founder or you're a leader on a team, an executive team, your objective, right, is to set growth goals of some type, right? Might be time, might be team, might be brand, might be revenue, right? That you can characterize that a lot of different ways and then, right, lead the organization to that next level of success. And in order to do that, there are two, four real factors that we define in our coaching, which is, I think, how we're able to kind of create that accelerator effect a lot more quickly than people expect or realize is possible. 
Um, I think a lot of people know Michael Kitsis is one of my clients and I've worked with him, I don't know, three or four years now. And the thing that 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 we really worked through that applies for at firms where scale is it really is about kind of fundamentally shifting your mindset around how you what we call the operating model for the business. So you've got core components and you can look at them in different ways. We define them as vision and mindset, like mindset is number one, right? Are you clear? Are you conscious? Are you in command? Do you feel empowered about your business? Or are you getting your butt kicked, grinding it out, telling yourself, you know, just around that corner or that revenue hurdle, it'll all get better right. and it never gets better, right? I always say that being a founder is like a wild swing from euphoria to exasperation and back again every day without the drama me, right? Like it's hot, it's slow, it's great, it's awful. What the hell was I thinking? It's <laughs> like, we're like bipolar, man. That's, you have to be the kind of person who can manage that or it will just utterly consume you. And so we get in this habit set of what we think will make us successful. And the reason I share the Michael example is because this is the conversation that we had is, when you shift into leadership and you're building value, it fundamentally means you're building something that exists beyond you. And that requires mapping. What's the vision? How, what's the game plan? How do we create accountability and manage to that plan? It requires, you know, you know, that's the mapping piece, right? Are we really clear and aligned to where we're going? When you think about buyers and sellers, what's the underlying motivation? Oftentimes it's premiums are really high and Maybe I should think about this because I see it all the time in the press. And there's a lot of those transactions happening. But relative to the percentage of advisors out there, it's still an incredibly small percentage, which means everyone else is building and growing, advantaging their firms until they have that vision and a plan or until it's forced upon them. Yeah. Right. So one is, are you really clear? So I love to say when the vision is clear, the decisions are easy, not without effort or economics, but they're certainly easier if you know, hey, I want to you know, takes, I want to deleverage my risk, right? I have a concentrated stock position. I want to pull some of that off, you know, monetize some of that, keep some upside. I need a firm, right, that will allow me and my team. It basically becomes down, can you create a map that does the fundamental thing that I think most people miss in transactions, buying and selling? Got it. Can everybody get their needs met? As humans, as founders, all we're doing every day is trying to get our needs met. Can we make sure that the systems work and our clients get served consistently without us having to be involved all the time? Can we create a steady pipeline of growth that isn't completely dependent upon us, right? Can we build a team that can really handle things and create a whole lot of leverage to drive into, like, we could go down the laundry list of every issue anyone listening has ever faced. If we've got a clear map, then we're in a much better position to evaluate Who's going to be the better partner? What are the needs that we need to have met? And the needs, we talk about the economics and they're obviously important, but my experience is that people figure that out pretty quickly. Firms have models. There's a little negotiating. That's never what makes it awesome or awful. It's how was the integration? Did, you know, life behind the curtain actually work the way I thought it would? What were the questions I forgot to ask? Like, you know, what's your service model and fees is pretty straightforward. What's your decision-making model? What happens if we disagree? What's my exit strategy if I change my mind are the things we really want to make sure that we're accounting for when we think about that map. Mindset. Yeah, yeah. So that's, just, that's one of the four pieces, yeah. So one of the areas that um, that we talk uh, constantly about is the just the people that the owners have on the team. 
and having them in the in the right seats yeah. uh, that are one, they're good at the the job, and then secondly, they're personally fulfilled in it. Do you find that that's a, ch- a challenge for a lot of older? Well, I think it's a huge challenge for founders just in maintaining and growing their firms, especially now, right? The demand for advice is on the rise. People are really seeking out services. We have a real talent shortage. Now we've got virtual, so you're right. Those people can get jobs anywhere. They're not even like trapped in your town anymore. Right. So you're competing with everyone for talent at a time, you know, so we see is so much of the work that we do on the on the firm side and the enterprise side is scaling advice models, training, service models and client experience so that we can do a lot more at a much higher level with fewer people on the headcount. So there's just a lot of leverage. Um, and that really goes to the to the methods piece, right? Those four M's I talked about mapping. I shared Michael's example because to your point around practice management, I would define practice management as a, a little bit differently, which is the thing that, you know, Michael uh, sent me an email one day and I, I shared webinars and stuff, but it literally was like his growth chart since we started working together. And it was like, Whoop! and it's like 10x. And he's like, this is the value, literally, hey, staff, just wanted you to see, like, I was just going through this, thought you'd like to see it. He's like, this really is a testament to the power of mindset in teams. And those are the two things that I think founders really fail to optimize, really harness to their full potential. It's hard, obviously, hiring, training, managing, rewarding, and growing people. But there are systems and structures that you can do to do it so much with more clarity, more confidence in a way that's clear and structured. And you want to create what I call a common language. Is everyone clear on what the role, right, right, all those things that we talk about. And so the thing that Michael said that I just, it struck me is so on point. So I always talk when I share with first, you know, if we want to do big things together, like his, his point was at one point, he said, I realized that in order to get where I want to go, I have to break things on purpose. Yeah. And so to me, practice... To me, practice management literally is the art and science of being a founder or a leader and looking at your vision and then figuring out how to optimize that from the perspective of, hold on, my phone just started talking to me. It doesn't (laughs) go like serious, like I got so distracted. Uh, Right. Where did I uh, back off here? Um, It was the the founders get uh, distracted, I think. Yeah, uh, you can all figure out how to. So, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the Michael example. So the reason that I share the Michael example is at one point he had sent me an email a few years in and it showed his growth chart over the last few years. And he has said, hey, Steph, I thought you'd love to see this. And it literally went like this and then went shoop, and had like a 10x next to it. And he's grown significantly since. So the reason that I share that is because it really created a conversation between us that sort of highlights how I would define practice management a little bit differently. And we were having a conversation about it. And I said, well, what, do you, what would you attribute this to? And and he said, you know, what I realized through this process is what's required of me is that I have to break things on purpose. Hmm. To me, practice management as a founder or a leader, really looking at a business, setting a vision, and then intentionally breaking things on purpose in a, right, a series of decisions and strategies and iterations to address the pain points and problems, the resistance that stand between them and the ideal that they have. And it's never perfect, but we can get to consistent excellence as long as we're clear and conscious and work with intention, which is why those other two M's are 
uh, momentum, right? Who are you as a founder? Are you clear? Are you focused? Are you empowered? Are you spending your time and energy on energy creating, revenue producing activities that you love? Mm -hmm. So often we go into firms and we resolve a lot of those issues. The founder doesn't want to be gone anymore. He or she is like, oh my gosh, I could do this forever. I just wanted to get rid of all the BS I did like doing now. Right. And and so again, depending on your goals, that may or may not be it. But a lot of times people want to exit a business because they want to exit the problems. And we really have an opportunity to just account for those problems in clear and con- conscious ways. And then suddenly things actually get better. And the fourth is is methods, which is just like to your point, what's the hiring? What's the training? So we break that down into right? Ultimately, your client model, which is the gas in your income, right? Your engine. Who do you work with? What are your fees and your pricing? And the staffing operations and growth. And each of those have a ton of stuff underneath them, as we know, but those are the four core areas. But if you've got the right mindset and you've got a clear vision and you have agency over your time, which is the thing most founders don't, which creates all the other issues, then you can design a client model, staffing model, operational model, and growth model that clearly aligns and interestingly, you get what Michael calls a hockey stick effect, where you're like, oh, I got to do this work. And then all of a sudden it, it's, it sinks, you get traction, and then you get that 10x kind of growth potential. And I think yep. founders are just afraid of it, because as you pointed out, I always like to say, when we have these ideals and we don't achieve them, we either can't, don't want to, or don't know how. And when it comes to businesses, there's just not a lot of can't. So it's really, a, I, you know, I don't want to, Maybe there's right headspace. The the there. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a whole lot of I don't know how. So we tend to just do what we do. And Einstein said one of my favorite quotes um, that most people don't know is um, no problem can be solved with the same consciousness that created it. That's, so to that's me, awesome. practice management is hey, can I sit in the space, evaluate what's happening, and right, break things on purpose to address the resistance so that I can create a business and life that I love. So a, cu- a couple things that you said in there that are, that are really interesting to me. The, the first, going back to, to Michael's 10x growth, a lot of times when we speak to sellers about um, making changes and then particularly in growth, they hear a couple things. And I want, I want your, I'm not going to tell you what I, I tell them. I'm not, I'm interested in your answer because I think it's going to be similar. Um, they'd hear, oh my God, I'm going to have to work 100 hours a week. Or if I grow so much, my service standards are going to suffer. Right. What would you, taking what you know to be true and implementing your four, you know, isms, are either one of those true? Uh, no, they're complete BS, right? And by BS, I mean belief systems. It, the other stuff too, but okay. belief systems, right? Events have no meaning. So our mindset, which is one of the things we're really big on at Limitless, because it turns out that is the radical game changer, right? You shift your mindset and things can actually shift really rapidly. Michael is a great example of that. Um, The first thing I would say is the one thing I hear over and over when it comes to growth or scale or rate building teams and creating leverage is my service is going to suffer. I'm not going to be able to take care of my clients. And I just want to say, not only is it not true, it's like ridiculously wrong literally 100% wrong. Scaling up does not mean watering down. So we're building these amazingly cool client experience advice and service models where we're delivering 5 and 10x the value in a systematic, consistent way, but it's hyper-specialized to the client audience's segments and needs. So we're literally doing far deeper work and value in half to 70% of the time at a team level. 
which frees up time to be happy, grow, spend personal, right, attentive time with clients as opposed to scrambling and grabbing the file as you run into the meeting. And then there's right systems behind that that make sure that it is literally the highest level client experience that firms are delivering. And it's work, but it's not, you know, what people think or when we start to think about those changes, they affect us. They affect our ability to get our needs met and they affect the stories that we hold. Most founders believe what I believed before I retired. If I work my butt off, longer, harder, whenever required, that is the secret to success. I will get ahead. And we as a culture utterly espouse that. There's only one problem. It grinds us down, burns us out, and does not bring our best to the table. And we get stuck in that gear and we know it. And so the litmus test I always use with founders, because your point was, right, how do we know if we need some practice management work or some headspace coaching work? Like, how do we know? And it's so simple. You don't have to go to Harvard for any of this. Two basic questions I ask people. One, is it working? Mm-hmm. If it's working, that's a good indication. Two, does it feel good? Oh, I was working. I was on magazines. I had millions of dollars. But man, it did not feel good in spite of the fact that I loved my work. Actually, didn't ever not like the work. There was something about it. Michael and I talked about this, but in the aggregate, it felt so burdensome and overwhelming that all the fun and joy got sucked out of it. Lost. And the only thing that changed along the way were the stories I told myself. In the beginning, I was working, you know, 12 hours a night. Oh, yeah, let's go. Right. Ten years later, you're like, oh, my God. And so we can really sit in the space of shifting our thinking. And we change when we change our mindset in the way that we think, like, oh, I'm going to give up control. I'm going to have to work hard. Like those things just aren't inherently true. They're the stories that have served us up to this point. And that is the hardest part for buyers and sellers in these transactions, certainly for the seller, as you have to ask yourself to answer the second part of your question. This is the conversation I had with every firm at United Capitalist, the conversation I have every firm that we coach with around any kind of exits, M&A succession, is you've got to be okay with the 80-20 rule. And the 80-20 rule, I don't know if you remember this, right? All the managing directors were in the, audi- audi- uh, the auditorium my first week. And I was like, hey, you have tomatoes under your chairs. If you want to throw them after my interest speech, you can. But just That's listen it. to me for 20 minutes. And I essentially got up there and said, look, hey, you joined for a reason. And that reason was that you believe we could offer you a value that you could not extract from your business on your own, whether that meant growth or time or freedom or just cold, hard cash mm-hmm. or stock. I said, but but we have an exchange here. At the end of the day, we have to believe that we can get there better together than we can on our own. But what's required for me to deliver that to you is going to require some shifts on your part that are going to be uncomfortable because you've sold and everything you've done up to this point says your way is right because you've processed it, you thought about it, you've decided it, your brain is hardwired to do confirmation bias and be like, my way my service model, right. my a portfolio strategy, right? My comp, like it's all the way it should be. And I said, there can't be 150 ways here or I won't be able to deliver the value. Here's why. When your team member's out and you want me to backfill, I won't be able to because the role's not defined and we haven't kept it consistent. And when you're one of your team members talks to another office that's paying $30,000 more, you're going to lose them because, right. right, like we have to have standards in order to scale. You cannot scale without standards. I said, but here's the deal that I will make you. Nobody gets everything they want, but we both get there better together. If you can assume that you're going to get 70 to 80% of what you really like most of the time. Mm -hmm. Hey, I don't love everything about that, but in general, it's good. Hey, most of what happens here is awesome. That one thing kind of bugs me a little bit. 
I said, if you can get okay with giving up that 20 to 30% of perfect in your mind, we can use that to create so much scale and opportunity. You're not going to care about those things very much. Right. And if there's systemic problems in the organization, we'll deal with them, but they're almost always situational to you. I said, if you can't give me that 20 or 30%, you can pick up, like, we're going to have issues because I need a little bit to work with here. And I think most people fundamentally got that's the exchange. So when you're a buyer or a seller, what are your respective needs, personal and professional across all the practice management? But there's a lot of other stuff, right? Does that buyer want you to go into growth mode? Do they want you to exit quickly? How much latitude do you have to change your mind? What's going to happen to your team? Like those are all the questions that run through everybody's mind. And the number one question that I know runs through everybody's mind because I've been asked it 5,000 times. How do I not screw this up? Right. No, no different than a client for advisors. Their biggest issue is, right, I need to make smart decisions. I don't want to mess it up. And so we get locked into the not knowing piece if we're not careful and we focus on economics or certain strategies, but we miss the bigger opportunity to really create a partnership, merger, however that is structured, that meets everybody's needs so that we are genuinely doing more together than we can on our own. And we can answer those two questions in the affirmative. Is it working? Yes. Two, does it feel good? Yes. And I think the feel good part is the part that people tend to not pay enough attention to. Well, no, those are all, um, well, I, I, you answered that question exactly as I thought you were, uh, and I, we share the same belief on that. Um, and, and, and also the answer dovetailed nicely into my final question for you, which is, okay, we're considering a partner. Uh, and let's say that you you can answer the question like perhaps it's not working the way that it should and and or it doesn't feel great. Right. And therefore, that those are two fundamental reasons that I would seek to partner with a larger firm who's at least telling me that they have the ability to help me solve these challenges. Right. Is there any questions you would ask or like, because I know at, at going back to United and we see a number of buyers who actually are really good at practice management or practice optimization, and when I start using that note, um, is they give data, real data to, um, and, and sometimes looking at data isn't the only way to evaluate it. Sometimes it's the case where you had the burnt out partner who's telling us coming into this, I want to retire in one to three years. They get on the other side of it and having all that junk removed from their life, they say, hey, I can do this 10 more years, you know. That's that's a hard to kind of quantify data point, but it's very real. However, there are some very specific things that I know that we evaluated, you know, KPIs and things like that, that we could point to that said, hey, the changes that you've made, um, these practice management changes has resulted in um, net promoter scores going up, team member satisfaction going up, revenue per employee going up, client termination going down, all these things. How would you, what are some things that you might give a seller to ask of a buyer that could demonstrate they're actually effective? Because that to me is where some of these things, these practice management concepts fall down is they go listen to a consultant or uh, that has great ideas and they're right in what they're telling them, but then they have to go back and implement it. They're not good at that. So the whole thing, they're just disappointed, you know, but, uh, Anyway, what what would be your response to how what questions to ask of a buyer to demonstrate that hey they're actually good at this stuff? 
Well, I think to your point, like any kind of data, right, net promoter scores, team scores, advisor satisfaction scores, we're going to give you some real insight into what life is like on the other side, right? How much watering does the grass actually need to go back to that analogy, right? Is it a like a nice, easy mow or did I just sign up to be right trekking across the lawn for 14 hours a week? So I think ultimately it goes back to that mapping conversation, which is if you are clear on what you want and need. So we always talk about key outcomes. Right. To your point, we our brains hit this fear factor mode. We actually go into survival mode when we're fearful, uncertain, threatened. We feel overwhelmed. We don't know what questions to ask. And when we get into survival mode, we're not in that kind of conscious, empowered, how do I get really clear about what I need and really objective about how I evaluate it. So, you know, the economics are straightforward. You know, what's going to happen to my team and my service model? But I find there's like a whole second and third layer of questions, right? What's the career advancement? What are those standards like? How are they going to be evaluated? What impact am I going to have in that? And and some really good firms have really started to put some of those structures in place. But I think it ultimately boils down to a founder getting really clear on what they need for themselves, right? The key stakeholders themselves, their bank account, obviously, their team, and their clients. And so we start high level, like, hey, we want our clients to feel loved and supported. Well, if the team model of the firm that you're going to is changing to a centralized model and you're in a, right, all, we all work for the clients as one team, like, how do we account for that? How do we get confidence around it? Because all of the questions that get asked can be answered. The question is, is it the right answer for the right time for the right firm, right? Because literally, as you know, you can take two good firms and they are not necessarily the right fit for every single firm out there. There's culture, there's right, what are the expectations we want to grow or transition out. So there's just a lot of variables. The number one issue is like, what are the things that you need to have and what are the things you're most afraid of? And then can we have conversations around that? Because what you ultimately want in all of the areas that are important, like if you map them out beyond just rate the stuff in the standard deal, then what you can get really clear on is how do we create a common language with this firm? so that everybody's operating from the same sheet of music. Hey, what if I decide I want to stay on for another five years, even though our deal is to leave? Oh, we don't know yet. Well, we should probably define that in writing before I sign on the dotted line, because all those it'll be okay stuff tend to create problems later. Mm -hmm. So it really is when you're evaluating partners, you, you've got the sheet, we've got the sheet. What are all the things and the portfolios and the average client size and all of that? And that's all very important. But then the question is, what are we doing it for? Is it really largely monetizing value? Are we creating real growth opportunity for the team? Are we giving ourselves a clear out? Are we trying to give ourselves flexibility over the next five to 10 years? Are we looking at leverage and capital resources? Hey, I can delegate all this stuff that I don't like and get it all structured and systematized that I can go out and grow. And when we get that kind of clarity, then we can have the important conversations about how's it landing with you? right? Hey, Bob, when you think about this firm and you think about X, does that work for you? What are the questions that you have? What are the, right, the, the, what if this goes wrong that we need to account and solve for? So I think it's just being really clear about why we're engaging in this transaction. What are the outcomes and needs? And then making sure we've got a conscious process beyond the economics that really looks at the experience that all the stakeholders are going to have. Well, well said, uh, Stefan. Um, I can't thank you enough for, for joining the podcast today. Your wealth of knowledge. Uh, the, the more you talk, the more I learn. Uh, I love listening to the sound bites and not just the sound bites, the, the depth behind them, but uh, you, you've helped many, many people 
uh, achieve a, a higher quality of life uh, through the, the things that you're implementing. So um, really appreciate you taking time. Uh, it very much look forward to working with you in the future. Um, I, I'm going to talk to my partner, Jacqueline. We're, we're probably going to call you and hire you. Too. <laughs> awesome. I would love to work with you guys. And if anyone wants more information, they can go to our website at limitlessupdate.life or follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn where I'm known to uh, frequent. And we're back. Great interview again. Uh, thank you, Stephanie Bogan from Limitless Advisor for joining Alan. Uh, great content. And I'm going to say I'm turning around and I got more questions as a result of listening through this. If I could believe I know our listeners are, have got questions too. And on that note, if you have questions, boardroom at alarisacquisitions.com, boardroom at alarisacquisitions.com. Please email us any questions you have about if you're a seller or buyer or anything in between. Send in your question. We'll read them on air in a future episode. Again, uh, boardroom at alarisacquisitions.com. So I got a question now in real time, um, real life examples. We've learned what practice management is. We've learned a little bit about what are the key indicators that you might want to look for if you're doing some self-scouting as an owner on where you need to maybe focus some of your attention to see if you're a candidate. We've talked a little bit. So we've talked very theoretical, right, about it. Stephanie has filled in some of those blanks for us, but here we are in real time. Guys, give me an example where you have seen it work. And it, I'm talking results now. I'm not talking about everybody went to the freaking meeting. I'm talking about where it was deployed. Continue. Well, okay. so, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about United and Capital because that's yeah, where we saw it like live happen. Um, and then Jacqueline, you might have some comments on some of the other buyers that we see in the market today that, that are really stand out here. But so... <laughs> If you looked at the United Capital, uh, the, the partner roster, and you segmented them like top 25%, bottom 25%, and then everyone in the middle, easily the ones in the top 25% were the adopters of our client experience and our practice management protocols, okay? So, um, and that was like without exception. So, and, and so where did they show up? Well, on average, revenue was up. I think it was somewhere between 25 and 40% mm-hmm. uh, top line revenue. Really? Yeah, yeah. I was sure. The first two up. years. Yeah, and it's really sure while it goes up, client terminations went down. The net promoter score, I think, in, went up like around 30% on average, 30% gain. You know, so those were all really uh, easy to point to, hard data points that were directly attributable to the practice management initiatives that were being implemented. Um, now, what was it? Well, so in their model, they actually, one, they had a very specific local staffing model, okay? Like a, positions that were designed to support the United Capital client experience. So similarly, any buyer today that has a client experience uh, that they're promoting, they're going to have a practice, uh, they're going to have a local officing office structure um, that they would have in place to support that. So it would it would start with, who are the, what are the roles and responsibilities? Do we have the right people there? If not, let's gradually migrate them into those roles. Um, and then they had something they called the ideal work week. The ideal work week was what we did on every day. All right. So like Mondays, for example, uh, they call them case prep days. That was where they were preparing for the client meetings two weeks, three weeks out, not this week but two to three weeks out. So they would 
the so the lead advisors will be working with the support personnel to identify you know what what is this client's individual situation and needs what are we recommending you know and they would put it all together in preparation again a few weeks ahead of time then Tuesday Wednesday Thursday those were days that we met with clients so those were largely those were planning and preparation days those were actually days we're meeting with clients. And then finally on a Friday was like a wrap up day where we're looking back and saying, okay, of all the meetings that we had, what do we need to be preparing for for case prep on Monday? You know, so it was a very uh, well-defined work week. Now it wasn't so rigid that if you didn't have people to meet with on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, you know, it, it was, but it was just a structure, you know? And so it was very impactful because most firms, um, and this isn't meant to be insulting, most firms have no structure for how they run their work week. It's literally just scheduling meetings uh, on demand or ad hoc. Uh, a lot of advisors are preparing for client meetings hours before the client shows up. So it's a madhouse in the office, you know, running around trying to put things together last minute. Operating on that ideal work week really smoothed things out uh, for everyone. So the partners, the client visiting advisors were much more prepared. The team was much calmer, you know, because they were being yelled at to get things for last minute. Uh, and it just worked smoother. So that that was an example of practice management in effect. Uh, but that's a United Capital story. So that that's one way. There are many other ways to do it. Mm -hmm. so, so maybe uh, who, who else, Jacqueline, would you say? I was thinking about, yeah, like, I mean, we've got Carson Group, of course, they're incredible and really focus on a lot of training and coaching, even far before the, the join date, before a closing, those months leading up to it, there's so much education on how roles will change, managing expectations, your point about the scramble before a client meeting, like that just isn't. That isn't the case. In order to fully utilize the centralized resources of a full planning team, which is such such a great thing to have at your fingertips, but it it doesn't come with the last minute not last minute requests like all the time. Of course, they can accommodate something if something comes up, but but more so planning ahead and really fully utilizing those resources. And then so like Carson Group and then Edelman Financial Engines. Those both of those firms are training around a process around a system to fully utilize everything and also really making sure that they're engaging with next gen as well to the point earlier about business development skills, really being with that founder CEO, helping the next gen advisors step into that role so that when the founder does want to exit, that they're fully equipped to not only service the clients that they have today, but also be able to grow the business and and really run the office. So yeah, that was that's what we did at United Capital. Jacqueline, I don't know if you have any other thoughts about other firms and how they implement practice management. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really expensive to pull off. The firms that are really good at it, and they, you know, United Capital, when that was around, and and even today, thinking about firms like. Carson Group, Edelman, Allworth, Beacon. I mean, there's so many, like these national firms, they have so much resources to bear to put towards this effort. Um, 
smaller firms that you're not excluding anyone on purpose, but it, it's there's just limited resources. There's only yeah. so much these smaller firms can do to put towards it. Not that they don't find it of value and seek out advisors that are really leaning into the guidance and and want to make it a bigger thing. It, it's just the more the bigger firms just have have all of that already. Yeah, I, I would say there to that point, you know, if if it's um a, a smaller firm, for example, uh, that you really like, um, and and but they may lack practice management, the ability to implement. Really, you would just inquire about their philosophy on practice management. Do they intend to build that out? You know, what's their go forward plan? Um, because they, if if they are philosophically aligned on that point, they will get there. And have the resources of some of the larger national ones do, but I, I would just really want to know, like, do does the buyer see that as something that they intend to deliver on behalf of their partners? And I, I find most are quite clear one way or the other. There are mm-hmm. those who see it as a value prop. There are those who don't believe that they have any desire to tell their partners how to do anything. Right. I think that's more of it. Like philosophically, are you wanting to g- get involved or leave them alone? And and that's clear from the start. And and also, I feel like sellers will be on one side of the fence or the other too, so they can Clearly. find the right match. Right? Yeah. It's in in our process. It's very early where we we have these kind of conversations to to tease out. Um, do they do they see practice management as an area that they would like assistance with? Um, you know, I, again, look, I really believe in incorporating practice management as a way to improve your life, your team's life improve the service level that you're delivering to your clients. Um, you know, so it's something that you just have to determine, are you a candidate for that? And do you see value in it? You know, and if it is, that will naturally orient you towards buyers who either have that built out um, and do a great job implementing it, or if they haven't built it out, they're at least philosophically aligned there and are going to get there one day. I like it. Do we have any mailbag questions, Rick? I got one. Yeah. Um, well, I got a couple today, guys, but I got one that's pretty interesting. Um, Alan and Jacqueline. Um, writer writes in, Hey, AA team, I a, run a national brokerage organization, but I'm also the owner of a very large OSJ at a national broker dealer. Uh, our model is 1099. We have hundreds of individual advisor owners that work with us. We're wondering if there is a way to interact with the Alaris team. Your thoughts? Well, presuming they're they're talking about an acquisition, this is actually a very um, nuanced topic for, uh, he called himself an OSJ or a super OSJ. We, we get interactions with these OSJs that um, they have an advisor base, they're all 1099 contractors, and they're essentially providing services to them for a fee. So let's say that there's a dollar of revenue coming in the door. They may take 10% of that and flow through 90% of that to the 1099 advisor uh, to provide compliance and uh, you know account support and basic services. So uh, when they're interested to transact, they want to monetize their business like any other RIA would. And so uh, unfortunately, we have to be the bearer of some tough news in many cases in that that's a very limited buyer pool. Um, that would be interested in acquiring that business for the very simple reason they don't own the client relationships. Because it's a 1099 model. That's right. 
1099. Exactly. So you, so you had the $10 million of revenue for, throughout the entire organization and you're 10%, you charge 10%. So you're taking a million dollars out of the business. Um, you know, you can't even monetize that uh, traditionally because the buyer, in order to do so, the buyer would require that all the 1099 advisors sign, you know, the traditional non-compete employment agreements, things like that, which they're not going to do. So you, you, you have a revenue stream, but you have one that's likely not monetizable in the traditional sense. However, there is a very unique opportunity uh, that we see as a pretty big uh, future trend in the industry. And that is uh, what's effectively called a buy-down strategy where the, the you know, and I'm going to really go through this quickly, it takes a lot of unpacking, but there'd be a valuation placed on the entire business as if it were one unified enterprise. And then the owner of that super OSJ in this model would be going to the 1099 advisors individually and offering them to participate in the transaction along with them. So the offer from the buyer on the firm and aggregate would be contingent on the 1099 advisors, you know, selling their business into the deal. And the reason why it's so powerful, um, because I want all the 1099 advisors, they have the same challenges that every other owner of an RIA does. And, and in terms of why you would transact, but the aggregate business is likely going to command a far larger value than any of the individual businesses as a solo, solo operator. So the 1099 advisor, in addition to all the benefits of joining the larger organization, um, they would likely receive a much higher valuation than if they tried to transact on their own. The, the linchpin to it all working is that the buyer really needs to believe that this is a unified business. You know, they, they're not typically interested in buying and this gentleman's, uh, you know, I think you said he had a couple hundred or advisors or something like that. You know, they've got to believe that that's not a couple hundred individual shops, all different brands, all different technologies, all different client experience, all different everything. There's, there needs to be a step towards, you know, unification of the advisors so that the, so that the buyer is not just buying a hodgepodge of uh, stock. So if I'm, I want to make sure I'm getting this. So if I'm one of those advisors, one of these 120 here or hundred and whatever it says in the email, I'm a 1035 in this organization already. And, you know, I'm reading every day that people are jumping BDs and, and leaving and the BDs aren't even finding out until after they're gone. So that they could go on into, I could take my individual practice, whatever my multiple is, is going to be my multiple, but it's going to be based on my little piece of the pie, or I can stay and transact and I'm going to get a higher multiple because I'm a part of this bigger, bigger pie. Yeah. That's essentially the story. Um, the, of course that needs to be led by the super OSJ owners. You know, they're the ones that have to drive the transaction. Um, but they would be negotiating on behalf of the entire team. All the 1099 advisors, they would effectively come to uh, a valuation on the enterprise, again, contingent on the advisors actually participating. They're all not going to participate. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work to go do this, but you know it, it's certainly doable. But, um, but yes, the answer is yes, Rick. So if, you're, if you had a million-dollar revenue firm that was producing 500000 of net income or EBITDA, that's going to trade probably at six times. Okay, so a $3 million valuation. Uh, 
if that million dollar firm was a part of a, a group that was a $10 million revenue firm and everyone contributed, um, and let's say the EBITDA in that aggregate firm was $5 million, okay, well, the $5 million firm is going to come in a much higher multiple than the million dollar firm as a solo, right? So, and it's, it's, could be as, probably as much as double um, the valuation. So the question would be, what what sort of premium does the owner of the super OSJ give to the individual advisors? And that's a case by case basis, but it's can be a massively better outcome for for everyone, you know, than <laughs> super OSJ because they really don't have a monetizable business. If it's pure 1099s, they win. And then the 1099 advisors get a higher valuation than if they were transacting under. So complicated order. Juicy nugget. Not a bad boardroom question. This one actually, Alan, is sort of like a late night date call in trouble with my relationship type question. So I feel like we should light candles and play music for this question, but it's 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 sort of tender. Um, Alaris team, I have two younger advisors that are both very talented. I think they will be with the firm for the foreseeable future. I worry that for my succession plan, I will only need one of them to take charge, so to speak, when that time comes. What can I be doing to keep both without disappointing the other one that's not likely to be the successor? That's a tough one. Like I like both, but I pretty much, that's that's tough. Well, Jacqueline, I'm sure you have a lot to say. That I got, obviously. Um, yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> I think, yeah, being clear about what you with that, the second one or the one that you don't think that will be the successor where the blind spots are and and maybe maybe they're open to changing things or or maybe the role really can be two people and, and figuring out a solution to keep both people if that's of interest. But I mean, ultimately my mind goes to documenting and having a buy-sell yeah. agreement and like outlining what you envision to happen so that it turns out the way that you want. Well, is it just like there's about it? There's two people here, and one is being tabbed as the successor; the other is not. Yeah, so my question would be: My question would be, one of you had got over safely. What? Yeah, we'll say it, it could be, but if have you had a conversation previously with either person about taking over or becoming the successor in the business? True. Like, have there been promises to both? Yeah, yeah. That, that's like the first thing that I would want to understand here is. What, what has been shared? What has been promised, if anything? If there's nothing been promised, then I don't see any issue. You're just going to, you know, pick the one that you feel like is the best qualified for the, for the role. If you have had conversations with the one that is not going to be chosen, I would get that on the table now. Um, it wouldn't be fair to them to keep them in, engaged, um, thinking that there was this opportunity that's not going to materialize. Mm -hmm. So, you know, give them the option of staying, you know, knowing that that is, is not uh, going to be on the table in the future or, you know, finding a home that's more aligned with their aspirations. So, oh, boy. So you can't assume that they're happy and then you can't assume that, that they would want to be a successor. But if you have the conversation and the answer is, yeah, probably not for you, you run the risk. So... Long and the short of it is it's a tight spot, but you better be talking about it sooner than later because you yeah. can't like talk about it. Well, you, the, the thing you don't want to do is what you said. Don't don't not talk about it. And then, you know, drop it on them a couple of years from now or something like that. That's a recipe for disaster. 
you know, further, like you should, if you're planning on doing an internal succession, you should be having conversations like early and, and be putting actual concrete things in place. Because if you don't, um, I've seen this happen on a number of occasions, the verbal, you know, success and succession plan ends up blowing up when the advisor, you know, leaves in the middle of the night and takes half the client base. You know, their thought is, well, why would I buy it when I can just, I can just for free. If, yeah. yeah. I mean, so often we see it, the advisors, they don't have their junior advisor signing non-solicits around the, the firm's clients and there's just nothing really stopping them. They yeah, want to total conversations with junior advisors. And by junior advisor, I mean junior advisors that have been there 15 years. Right. Owner right. operator is hardly in the office that it's literally said, look, I've got nothing in and it's signed and I want to do the right thing, but we could leave and take everybody and it wouldn't be a big deal. Of course. Yeah. yeah. That's a risk. Tricky place. Yeah. So uh, that's it for buyers. Oh, tough, tough one, but yeah, communication would be the key to that one. Well, we come to a close with another great episode. Everybody, uh, boardroom at alarisacquisitions.com. The questions are getting better. They're getting chewier. They're getting emotional. So we are cutting to the core of who you are as our listener, and we love you for it. As always, Alan Darby, Jacqueline, I am Rick Music, your faithful host of the Buyer's Boardroom here with Alaris Acquisitions. Until next time, be good to yourselves. Bring a friend. we got plenty of room. All right. Thanks, See you soon, guys.